Steve, from reading your bio on your site or an article about you, I understand that you taught improv back in the 70s <laughs> in prisons. You received a grant? Uh, yeah, I was, um, uh, I was part of a company. I was very young back in the 70s, <laughs> obviously. And uh, so I was part of a group called Wings. And uh, this was a group that had gotten a grant to go to prisons in Virginia and uh, with the idea of teaching them improv. Um, and it was kind of a, a great, um, slightly misguided effort, but it was, it was really wonderful. I mean, we went into a medium uh, security prison, a women's prison, and a maximum security prison. And we met amazing people. And the, and the amazing thing is, is those guys were better improvisers than we were. We would come in and do a show, you know, like a little scene from an adaptation of Chekhov's the, you know, the the marriage proposal, or a scene from the musical, you know, Adam, you know, um, the Apple Tree, you know, uh, where I played Adam. And then after we did that, uh, then we would grab uh, a couple of uh, about ten or twelve inmates, and we would teach them. Uh, a series of, of improv lessons, usually lasting about a month and a half, and then we would go off to another prison. And uh, this one place that we went to, I understand that they formed a group that kept on performing years after we left. Uh, but the, the weird thing is, is that here were, all the, here were these four middle class, you know, you, know, you know, up with America kind of group, and uh, we, I don't think we had ever um, encountered people like that, uh, you know, and uh, there was this one guy, you know, he was, he was called Smiley, and uh, Smiley would have this big grin, and, uh, you know, you're there with them for, for weeks, and so somebody asked him, so what'd you do to get here? And he said, well, I would walk into, you know, Burger King, and I would say, you know, give me a Big Mac and sing the song, and we'd go, sing the song. Yeah, sing the song. And then they would say, well, we're not going to sing the song. Uh, then he would pull out this huge revolver um, and he would say, sing the song. And then he would make them sing, you know, special orders, donor, uh, uh, whatever the song was. Uh, and uh, then he would rob them and he was eventually caught. Uh, there was another guy who had this picture of this woman. And he said, what do you think of her? And uh, we would say, well, she's pretty. Yeah, that's my wife. I killed her. You know, it was, it was surreal. And the, the one thing that I got out of that is I don't know those people. I, I don't know how they live. I don't, I, I, rather than, oh, I'm, I've been in prisons for a couple of days and I know exactly everything there is to know about this subculture. And I, I left with the appreciation that there's so, so much about so many people that I know nothing about, uh, at least having the respect of knowing what I don't know. Um, but it was a great training uh, period for me. It was a great um, uh, learning experience. And I took the experience I learned doing improv, teaching improv, and I used that a couple of years later to open a theater company in New York called Manhattan Punchline, where, where I started teaching improv. Not to, not to prisoners, just to actors. Going back to what you said earlier, that they were actually some of the best at comedy or, or natural actors? They were natural actors. I mean, they were um, people who uh, who had a natural pr proclivity to make things up, you know, on the spot. Um, and uh, one of the things I, I realized from, from that experience 
was that that in order to do improv, in order to play comedy, uh, you have to come from a truthful place. I mean, those guys were making things up, making up stories, but they they didn't they weren't actors. They didn't know anything about acting. All they knew about was was taking their own sense of who they were in the world and and applying it to imaginary circumstances. And I thought, you know, that's what actors should do: is simply take who they are and how they how they are in the world and apply those to imaginary circumstances, as opposed to um, at the time in New York. Uh, theater took itself very seriously. I mean, you know, if I never saw another production of The Three Sisters with actors in turtlenecks, it'll be too soon. Um, you know, very self-important, self-indulgent. And the one thing that, that I, I observed is that they weren't self-indulgent. They were trying to do something, Every, you know, in their, in their own criminal lives. Um, they, they only lie to achieve a goal for themselves. And so that was another very interesting, very useful lesson, is that um, trying, to, trying to keep actors focused on what wins for them. That's a, you know, a term that we use uh, in, in the book Hidden Tools. You know, winning is the idea that you know, rather than worrying about uh, emoting, feeling, or, or, or trying to do something for an effect, just what what do you need to do to get what you want and and the idea that comedy gives you the permission to win comedy gives you the permission to do what you might not ordinarily do in real life but given the permission uh you you might grab a girl and kiss her um which in its suddenness and and and, and uh, lack of transition might appear funny to somebody but in effect it's simply somebody giving themselves the permission to do what they need to do in order to win. It's the moment in Groundhog Day when Bill Murray, having realized that he's living the same day over again, meaning that there's no consequences to anything he does, he wakes up, he goes downstairs, he kisses the landlady full on the lips, uh, the um, insurance guy comes up to him and without any uh, preamble, he just knocks him on, you know, onto his butt. Um, comedy gives yourself the permission to win. One of the uh, exercises we do in the workshop that I teach is um, called the classic problem of three lawyers. And what we do there is we give each person, each of the three lawyers in this improv, uh, a problem to solve. And we, we then say, you have the permission to win. And one of the problems might be uh, to get somebody to go first, to go before you, to leave the room before you. and. Uh, when we do it with actors in an acting workshop, uh, it could take 20 minutes for actors to leave the room because actors um, are so uh, trained to emote, to act. You know, there's the spotlight there and the light, you know, just act. But in comedy, it's not about being on stage. It's about doing what you need to do in order to win. So uh, when, I, when I say to them, you have the permission to win, Sometimes somebody will get the idea to pick up one of the other lawyers and just throw them out the room. That gets the other lawyer out first. It's, it's comic without trying to be funny. And that's the other key, is that if you look at great comic actors, um, contemporary comic actors, uh, like Ben Stiller, say, uh, or, or Bill Murray, um, what they're doing in their films is doing what the character needs to do, following their character's needs and wants, fears and, and uh, desires, but they're not trying to be funny. 
uh, bad comedies. If you think about bad comics, and I don't want to name you know any names because you know who knows somebody might want to talk to me some sometime later in my life. But you know if just think about a bad comedy you've seen, and what you can see more often than not, especially bad sitcoms, are people trying to be funny, trying to do. Wouldn't it be funny if? And uh, that's probably the 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 biggest uh, error that that you know, new actors and new writers make is the idea that doing a comedy means you're trying to be funny, um, which is the, the equivalent of, uh, of an actor or actress trying to do drama, so crying on, you know, just crying up a storm. Um, it's about the audience having the reaction. It's not about the character having that reaction. So it almost sounds like with the prisoners, they weren't afraid, whereas actors maybe get in their own way because this is who I am. I'm an actor. I've studied. This is my label. This is my identity in the world. And so much is built around that. Whereas with the prisoners, you know, yes, maybe this is their whole MO in life and this is how they've gotten by on people, but their whole identity wasn't stamped with, yes, MFA actor, classically trained, whatever. Yeah, to, yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I maybe this could be my next book, uh, you know, comedy from the prisoner's point of view. Uh, but I, I think, again, uh, if you look at great improvisers, sketch comics, stand-ups, people who haven't had acting training but have had comedy training, which means that they've had training on relating to what's in their environment, seeing what's really there and, and letting it affect them and, and, having an, and having an opinion about it. Um, you don't need to have studied with Uta Hagen to do great comedy. I mean, look at Jerry Seinfeld and, and um, you know, uh, Bob Hope, uh, Woody Allen. None of them studied with great masters of Stanislavski, but they all had the ability to see the world the way it was and have their character have a reaction to that world while trying to move through the scenario, trying to get what they want. And so that immediacy, that breaking the fourth wall, even if you're not talking to the camera, they're breaking the fourth wall because they comment on what's actually happening around them. Um, great comics doing ad libs is basically commenting on what's real in their environment. And that creates comedy. I mean, so um, the Judd Apatow films are full of actors who are simply uh, coming up with ad-libs. In fact, they do ad-liberama, meaning they'll have a setup and they'll have a, a setup line and then they'll film the actor doing response and they'll, have, they'll do 13 or 14 different kinds of responses. Uh, and the, all the responses are based upon what do you really see, what's really happening, and what's the most simple, direct, and honest response. There's a moment in um, 40 Year Old Virgin uh, in which uh, Steve Carell uh, is being taken home by the bookstore lady and she's getting all, you know, crazy on him, you know, all, all, you know, all kinky. She gets into the bath, she starts to pleasure herself, and they tried any number of funny, funny lines, funny ad libs. And finally, none, none of them were really working, none of them were really popping. Finally, Judd Apatow just walked to Steve Carell uh, and said, uh, so what, what does it look like? What do you think? And Steve Carell looks and says, it's graphic. And that's the line they used in the movie. Wow, it's graphic. Because that was the simple, direct, 
honest response to what he's seeing. And that's basically what comedy is. Comedy is seeing what's really happening and having some kind of a response to it, or at least that's, that's part of comic acting. And, and you can apply that to comic writing too. In keeping with the theme of, you know, being a classically trained actor and sometimes getting in your own way, I was listening to the Mark Maron podcast, WTF podcast, and they had uh, Ileana Douglas on there, and she- Ileana Douglas worked in my company, worked with my company in New York uh, oh, okay. way, way long ago. Oh, well, she was, she was wonderful on the show, and I, I've listened to it several times. And so Mark Maron threw out this line about this sort of acting teacher ego bullshit about how sometimes they squash people, and maybe not to be malicious, but because it wasn't done a certain way. And so Ileana referred to something where she had done a scene, and the teacher said, I'm sorry, you walked through your invisible wall. You can sit down now. And so... <laughs> okay, I thought she might have said something about me, but oh, good, no, no, she no, didn't. No, okay. no. But uh, so, so in keeping with that, sort of being trained too rigorously, do you think it's almost like, you know, just how sort of a lawyer or a doctor, they know that there's, there's certain structures, certain things that you cannot variate from. Sort of left brain um, jobs where you can't really vary from those things. Whereas with acting, do you think sometimes actors put themselves too tightly in a box to be funny? Well, I guess the point is, is that um, actors are trained in all sorts of arts. They're trained to be great movers, great walkers, great poets. Uh, they learn how to fence. They learn Shakespeare. They, they learn Stanislavski. Uh, but there's very few places that teach comedy. So uh, what happens is, is that when they are trying to do comedy, uh, they've been taught, a lot of people have been taught, well, you're either funny or you're not. I mean, so as though it was an art form that couldn't be taught. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, whether they're boxed in or not, I think what, I think what happens um, is that they unconsciously are making errors that if they were aware of, they could fix immediately. For instance, um, uh, actors are taught that everything has to come from you know, their character and their character is the hero of their story, uh, which in some performances makes it very kind of very indulgent. So sure. actors, uh, actors who don't have comic training or, or, or haven't done a lot of improv um, tend to look at their characters and whatever their characters' negative faults are, they justify them. Whereas in comedy, the whole point is to tell the truth about people. I mean, to tell the truth about uh, who you are and what you are. And um, uh, I, I like to tell, you know, when people often ask me, well, what's the, you know, there's no difference between comedy and drama in the writing and, and, the, and the acting. And I say, well, that's not true. Drama helps us dream about what we could be. We become the best of who we are when we're writing or acting drama. But comedy helps us live with who we are. Comedy helps us live with who we are. So I say to them, have you ever seen a production of Hamlet, say? And you know, some people will raise their hand, and I'll say, in your production of Hamlet that you saw, or were in, did you ever see Hamlet fart? People go, no, and they start to laugh. And I say, well, what would happen if Hamlet just let out a big one? You know, to be or not to And people say, that would well, be funny. Exactly. People do fart. People do pass wind. It happens in life, but in drama, they excise out the 
things that would make the character look ridiculous. Whereas in comedy, they allow the character to be sad, to be tragic, but they tell the truth about the character. So, so the simple equation is comedy tells the truth, and specifically, it tells the truth about people. So, so uh, actors are kind of trained to tell a beautiful lie, uh, a, a wonderful lie, but, uh, but in terms of playing comedy, you have to tell the truth about yourself, which is why it seems that comic actors are, you know, are less than, you know, they're, they're, they're not that attractive or not that bright or not that strong. But the reality is, is none of us are that bright or, or that attractive or that strong. I mean, unless you're, you know, a supermodel or unless you're a, a pro athlete. I mean, the, the reality of us as human beings is we're flawed and every, you know, uh, no matter how good we try to make our flaws go away or, or, or overcome our flaws. Um, the sad fact is, is that, you know, we're, you know, we're all doomed to the ultimate flaw, which is our death. Uh, and, you know, the dramatic artist takes a look at her death. Say, you know, the guy behind the camera there, David. Say David dies. That, now that's sad. Um, I know, it's sad. Uh, the dramatic artist would take a look and say, a man died, how sad. But the comic artist would take a look at the same thing and say, yes, a man died, but look how he lived. How ridiculous. Because, you know, most of us uh, are aware somewhere that, you know, that uh, man is the only animal that has any working knowledge of our own demise, right? Uh, and based on that, based upon the fact that we all know somewhere back in our minds that we're going to die, what do we do? Do we all sit home weeping softly, writing haiku? No, we, we get up, we, we do what we need to do, we do what we want to do. And, um, you know, every, you know, the shirt or the blouse or the, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the shoes you're wearing, everything you put on today, you put on because it was comfortable or it made you feel attractive or it, it, it helped you do your job or maybe it was simply the one that smelled the least on the pile on the floor. But everything you do, every action you take is designed to make your life a little bit better. Will it solve our ultimate problem? No, we're still going to die. But even though some of us may despair, some of us may be sitting home weeping softly, writing a haiku, but as a race, as a species, we are all going to do the same thing tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that because human beings live in hope. And, and comedy is the art of hope. Comedy is the art of stupid, futile, ridiculous, uh, uh, un, unattainable hope. Um, so the, so from that idea, um, we can draw what, you know, a paradigm. I always love that word. It sounds, it sounds so Robert McKee paradigm, but it's actually an equation. Comedy is about an ordinary guy or gal, Jackie Gleason used to call him a moak, struggling against insurmountable odds without many of the required skills and tools with which to win, yet never giving up hope. Ordinary guy struggling against insurmountable odds, what could be more insurmountable than our own demise, uh, without many of the required skills and tools with which to win, yet never giving up hope. And, and from that equation, from that paradigm, we draw these usable practical tools that work whether you're an actor or, or a writer or a director, because comedy is a very unified art form. Um, you know, the tool of winning, comedy gives you the permission to win. The tool of the non-hero, not a comic hero, not, not a ridiculous fool, but sim somebody who simply lacks some, if not all, the required skills and tools. Uh, metaphorical relationship, 
The idea that beneath surface relationships are, is a truer, essential relationship, a metaphor. Uh, positive action, the idea that every action your character takes, your character actually thinks it's going to work, otherwise why bother? Why would they do that? Um, uh, active emotion, the reason why untrained actors uh, and comics can be so successful in film and television. And straight line, wavy line, the idea that, uh, that the dynamic in comedy isn't about a funny guy uh, doing, saying all the jokes and somebody else, you know, kind of just supporting them by feeding them straight lines. That the dynamic is actually a straight line and a wavy line. A straight line like, a, like somebody who has blinders on. Somebody who's blind to the problem or creating the problem. And a wavy line, somebody who's struggling with the problem, but because they're a non-hero, they can't solve it. Steve, can you give me an example of a hero? Yeah, maybe absolutely. Some actual characters from a absolutely. Do you remember Charles Bronson? Mm -hmm. When I was growing up, Charles Bronson was the consummate hero. You know, uh, Death Wish. Um, you know, the the Great Escape. Put Charles Bronson in a room with twelve guys with guns. Who wins? Charles Bronson. Charles Bronson. And why? Because he's got a name tag. Hi, I'm Charles Bronson. Drop dead. No, he wins because he's got all the skills. He's the best shot. He's a good strategist, he's got great tactics, he's good with weapons, um, he can withstand pain, you know, shoot Charles Bronson in the head, he just slaps a band-aid on, he keeps on going. Shoot the bad guy in the shoulder, they're out for the whole fight. He's psychic, Charles Bronson's psychic. He, you know, he walks into a room and a guy in a trash can jumps up with an Uzi, just like that. And, and, um, and Charles Bronson, you know, whirls around before the guy can get a shot off and plugs him right between the eyes. And I, I ask, how did he know? I mean, if a guy jumped up with an, uh, from a trash can with an Uzi, I'm going to die of the infarction first. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to be surprised. I'm not going to know what to do. Uh, so a non-hero is not somebody who's doing something ridiculous. Wouldn't it be funny if? A non-hero is simply somebody who lacks some, if not all, the required skills and tools with which to win. A hero is not necessarily somebody who, in, in my use of the term, who fights a dragon. A hero is somebody who simply evidences, is that a word? Shows great skill. I mean, in, in soap opera, for instance. Um, you know, those, those people in soap operas, they're kind of perfect. They're supernaturally beautiful, right? And they're never surprised by anything. They're, you know, it's like, uh, uh, say, say to me, you're, you're breaking up with me. I have to take my glasses off because in soap operas, everybody has perfect vision. Um, Steve, I don't think this is gonna work anymore. You're breaking up with me? I just think we should see other people. For David, right? And you see, in, in a soap opera, uh, I'm not surprised. I'm hurt. You can, see my, you, know, you can see how I'm feeling, but I'm not hurt. But in a comedy, you'd say you're breaking up with me, and, and the response might be, before dinner? Because, you know, maybe she'll still cook me dinner before she leaves. So, so a hero is simply somebody who has skills. And in fact, the idea of non-hero skills is very useful because in a romantic comedy, say, your, your hero or heroine starts out either as a jerk like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day or as a dweeb like Sandra Bullock in While You Were Sleeping. But how do you make them romantic figures? Halfway or three quarters of the way through the movie, they start gaining skills. Bill Murray becomes romantic, sensitive, aware, deeply feeling. So he's, so he's transitioned from a jerk, a comic figure, to a more dramatic figure. Sandra Bullock becomes 
uh, aware of her of her loneliness, which which you know just the knowledge of her loneliness makes her a more dramatic figure. Um, in fact, every movie has that point about three quarters of the way through. Uh, you know what what we call the dark night of the soul, and uh, what what that dramatic, even in a, especially in comedies, and what that dramatic moment is all the time is simply your protagonists or your main characters becoming more aware of how desperate their situation is, how really futile their situation is. And that creates a dramatic moment, that creates almost a tragic moment. Whereas before, they were ignorant or blithely unaware or just, you know, uh, what, what Lisa Kudrow used to call unearned optimism. You know, if somebody is just like looks at the world and is just happy with what they see, that's an idiot. That's, you know, Phoebe and friends, that's Coach or Woody and Cheers. Um, and, and so, you know, that's not the only way to, to create a comic character or, or um, make comedy, but, but uh, a character could be very smart, but also be very um, mean. That's a lack of, a lack of empathy. And so you have characters like Danny DeVito in Taxi, or David Spade in everything. Uh, and, uh, and, and so the, they, they create comedy because they simply lack the skill of being a nice person, you know, have, being empathetic. So you can take skills away, you create more of a comic moment, comic persona, you give the character skills, and it creates more, dr more drama. Steve, can you explain the structure of a romantic comedy and how does that differ from the structure of a dark comedy? Uh, I, you know, I think uh, the structures are actually not that dissimilar. Um, uh, in a romantic comedy, you have uh, a protagonist um, who is, uh, has taken an awkward stance in life. Um, just think of uh, the image of a man slipping on a banana peel. That's, you, know, you see somebody kind of waving their arms, wait, looking for balance. And in a, in, in a comedy, the, the, the comic paradigm, the, the, the comic hero's journey, is that you, you start your film with this character being off balance but not knowing it. Bill Murray thinks all he needs is to work at a bigger network. And really, he's, he's a, a misanthropic, miserable guy. Um, Sandra Bullock in, um, uh, in While You Were Sleeping is, is desperately, uh, you know, locked in to herself. But she thinks, well, that's the way it's always going to be. Um, in When Harry Met Sally, uh, Billy Crystal uh, thinks he knows everything there is to know about women. He's got it all figured out. He's got all the answers. Uh, and, and what happens is, is something occurs, uh, the catalyst. Uh, the premise. Something occurs that pushes this character off balance. And what they do is they spend the first part of the film desperately trying to return to the normal world which they're used to, but which we in the audience see is desperately off balance, is the wrong stance in the world for them. And along the way, as they're trying, as they're going on this journey to, re to return to where they started from, they start to realize, they, they, they become aware, they discover that there's a whole new way to learn, way to, way, there's a whole new way to stand in the world and, and to make them a, a, a whole person. So in both romantic comedy and in, in regular comedies, in dark comedies, you have characters who are desperately uh, struggling to 
retain the kind of contorted um, stance they have in the world and they learn to stand straight in the world. And they, so every character in, in a comedy, every protagonist has to start with a hole in them, some, something lacking, something missing, because that's what the journey's about, to, to, to become a better human being. In a dark comedy, uh, the writer is not so much interested in the person becoming a better human being as much as uh, kind of revealing how really miserable the world is and maybe the character finds out. In, in really dark comedies, you know, the characters lose, like in um, Wag the Dog. Uh, but even in, in most satirical comedies, you do want the character to have some kind of moment of, of satisfaction. You know, what some people might think of a happy ending, but, but really you don't want the character to end up beaten and miserable. That's three quarters of the way through the movie. You want the character to have learned something and become a better person because of it. Um, Julia Roberts in My Best Friend's Wedding. It would be horrible if she ended up ruining uh, Cameron Diaz's wedding and still being unhappy of herself and you know, and then going off by yourself. It's, it's impossible, you could do that. But I think as an audience, we're all more satisfied with her not getting the guy, but learning a lesson that she's satisfied with. She's satisfied that she doesn't get the guy because she's gotten something else. She's gotten a better understanding of who she is and how to live in the world. I thought you were gonna ask me, why do most rom-coms suck? Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you why most rom-coms suck. Most rom-coms suck because there's the mistaken belief that a rom-com is about creating obstacles for two people to keep them apart, because otherwise the film would be 12 minutes long. But that's not the way it is in life. In life, it's not about keeping you and David apart. It's about figuring out, once you're together, how you can possibly stay together without killing each other. So. So a rom-com, uh, bad rom-coms focus on stupid, stupid events that arbitrarily keep two people apart. Where the best rom-coms, I just saw, I just saw Harry, When Harry Met Sally the other day, because it's New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh, and really, the, the whole film is framed by these people, most of them elderly, recounting how they met the one. And there you see a guy who meets her when he's 21 and he doesn't realize it. So, so it's not about keeping them apart, it's about realizing who you are and who and what you want. And it's, it's a wonderful moment in When Harry Met Sally that they just don't, end, they don't hate each other at first sight. Uh, in fact, they're kind of attracted to each other, but because they have these masks in front of them, um, she has the mask of a good girl. He has the mask of a, you know, a world, a world traveled man. Um, what my friend Michael Haig calls their identity, uh, because they have they're so locked into their identity, their masks, they can't be vulnerable enough to see who the other person really is. And it's only when his wife leaves him, when Billy Crystal's wife leaves him. In fact has planned to leave him because, you know, as soon as she tells him, the moving guys come up to move all her stuff out so she can go live with this accountant she's fallen in love with, that he becomes vulnerable enough to not always be condescending to, uh, to the girl and, and to pretend that he knows everything. It's when he admits that he doesn't know everything, but he desperately still wants 
to be happy that they start to become friends. Uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful, wonderful rom-com because it doesn't say love, it's love at first sight because what you see in the framing device is you see two people who he was sure he's going to marry this woman uh, when he first saw her. You see another couple who 37 years go by and then they meet each other again and, and, and this time the right time is right. And Harry and Sally are right in the middle. They had to wait for the time to be right, but they were right for each other. So, so you know, most rom-coms suck because they're too busy trying to create op uh, arbitrary false obstacles. Um, and they load their films with wouldn't it be funny if. Silly things that somebody's thinking, wouldn't it be funny if. There, there's a film that I screen in, in the workshop. Uh, we screen, uh, screen a couple of scenes of it, uh, uh, Alex and Emma. Uh, Alex and Emma, the premise of Alex and Emma is Alex, Luke Wilson, is uh, a writer. And he's, oh, he's also a gambler. He owes the mob $100,000. But he's going to get $125,000 when he finishes his manuscript. But he hasn't written one word of it. And in a, you know, in a previous scene, the mobsters, to threaten him, throw his laptop out the window. And I guess because there's no other laptops in New York, uh, he comes up with a great idea to hire a stenographer. He's going to dictate an entire novel in 30 days. Okay. You buy the premise, you don't buy the premise, but it sets up, uh, Kate Hudson comes up, she's the stenographer, she's kind of uh, uptight, professional, a little cautious. Uh, she goes to his apartment, and he's supposedly this law firm, and uh, he says, why don't you come in? And she says, I don't want to come in, this doesn't look like uh, a law firm, it doesn't even look like a nice place to live. And so he starts to uh, Luke Wilson starts to make up a story about how they're, you know, they're between offices. And then, in a wouldn't it be funny moment, he faints at her feet. And you might think, well, what wins for him? What, what does he really want to do? Uh, why doesn't he just say, listen, I owe, I owe some guys $100,000. I have to dictate a novel in 30 days. And most people will say, well, because if he just says that, the movie's over. But why would the movie be over? Why would she say, okay? Uh, and, and what she does is she says, you know, the guy's lying on her feet. And she says, oh, here I am with a dead lawyer lying on my feet. And I ask the women in my, in my uh, workshops, well, what would you do? And some say, I'd run away. Really good Samaritans. Others would say, I'd, I'd um, you know, knock on uh, some neighbor's doors or I'd call 911. Somebody would say, I'd check, his, I'd check to see if he's alive. And I'd say, if you were cautious and professional, how would you check to see if he's alive? Well, he says, well, I might, you know, just touch his neck or I might, you know, kind of tow him, see if he moves, see if he's still alive. But in the movie, what happens is Kate Hudson, after the line, what am I going to do with a dead lawyer lying on my foot? Okay. And she picks him up by the family jewels. She picks up his two legs like a wheelbarrow and cracking wise the whole time she drags him into his apartment. And it's like, why would she possibly want to do that? How, how is that cautious and, and uptight and professional? It's just something that somebody put in there. I don't know whether it's the writers or director or the actors, because somebody thought, wouldn't it be funny if? But that's a terrible way to, to write a, a comic screenplay. Not wouldn't it be funny if, but who are your characters? What do they want? 
what do, what are they what are they willing or able to do to get what they want? And if you simply follow your characters, what Bill Prady calls, who's the executive producer of The Big Bang Theory, who says, I don't even have premises. I don't even have situations. I, I, I start with a simple situation and then I just follow my characters and see what they say. Like, a, like, like he's a reporter uh, writing dictation. Just follow, figure out what your characters want because the, the less, not realistic, but believable, the less believable your characters are. If they give up believability to do something, wouldn't it be funny if, then you're not going to care about them when you need to care about them. The perfect example of that is the revelation scenes in Big and 17 Again. There's a very similar revelation scene. In 17 Again, um, Zach F., you know, Matthew Perry wishes that, you know, he's going through midlife crisis. He wishes he were young again. Um, a magic janitor puts a curse on him. And you know you're scraping the bottom of the comedy barrel when you've got a magic janitor. The magic janitor puts a curse on him. He, he in, in kind of an homage to It's a Wonderful Life, the janitor jumps in the river, he jumps in after him. Um, uh, cut to, he's, he's going back to his apartment, he goes into his shower, he's starting to shower. Um, and then he looks in the mirror because we all have mirrors in our shower because it's such a safe thing to do. And Matthew Perry looks in, but it's no longer Matthew Perry, it's Zac Efron. And in about a second, he goes, ah! My thought is, why was he, why did he know so much? Why did he anticipate? I mean, now take a look at the same similar scene in Big. Tom Hanks wakes up. All we see is his feet stepping on a rubber, you know, a rubber ducking. He goes into the bathroom. That's what you do when you wake up in the morning. He looks in the mirror and there's a 30-year-old man looking back at him. So what does he do? Does he go, ah, no. He goes, that's strange. He looks in the back of the mirror. Okay, maybe it's not the mirror. He, maybe they're sleeping in my eyes. So he rubs some water in his eyes and then he looks up and he's still a 30-year-old man. And then... He feels a beard and he's, he's starting to notice it's about the revelation. It's about the discovery. Uh, and he, he, he kind of, he's freaked out. And then the very next shot is he's lovingly, slowly looking at this new phenomena, really discovering it. I mean, then they go to a joke in a second where he notices his hair, his chin hair, his chest hair, and then of course he, because you'd peek, wouldn't you? Um, but the fact is, is that all the crazy stuff that's going to happen is given the foundation of reality because we care about the guy. He's real. He's acting believably. Rather than worrying about what's the, where's the joke here? You'll find the joke. You'll find the gag. First, create the reality. I mean, there's enough comedy in life that you don't need to be inventing it. Um, you can use a metaphor where you don't invent stuff, you just recollect it. Uh, like in a metaphorical relationship, um, there's a scene in Seinfeld when Jerry and George are in the back of a police car and they start going, no, no, and they start playing around. And the metaphor is, you know, two kids in the back of a car. And I'll ask people in my, in my workshop, who, ha he, who here has a, a kid in the back of their car? Who here was a kid in the back of the car? And everybody raises their hand then. Because we all were kids in the back of a car. So when you're using a metaphor, you don't have to 
invent something funny. You don't have to make shit up. You simply have to recollect it. And if you put, if you put a, uh, the true organic, honest behavior into the wrong vehicle, into the absurd uh, uh, character, but they're still acting honestly and organically, it creates a comic moment without trying to be funny. That's the whole point. Don't try to be funny because funny is subjective. What makes you laugh might not make me laugh. So funny is subjective. To try to hang your hat on funny, you know, you might find it funny. Somebody else might not find it funny. You want to try to create a comic moment, which is an ordinary guy struggling against insurmountable odds without many of the required tools, yet never giving up hope. Steve, let's talk about introducing conflict into a comedy script. How soon, how subtle, how intense in the beginning? Uh, by conflict, um, you don't have to have a, an antagonist for conflict. I mean, most characters in comedy are in conflict anyway. They're in conflict because they're assholes, and so they're, they're in conflict with their co-workers, or they're idiots, and so they're in conflict with the world around them. Or they're uh, like George and Seinfeld, you know, always kind of downtrodden, you know, Eeyore, um, uh, as it were. And, and so the, he's in conflict with the world. And so the, the best comedies create characters that are intentionally uh, conflicting with either other people or, or the world or themselves. What you don't need is you don't need an antagonist. You can have an antagonist, but it's not necessary. In Groundhog Day, there's no antagonist. There's no villain who's trying to thwart him. It's just that he's a jerk who, you know, everybody kind of rolls their eyes about. Uh, and then he's stuck in this time warp that how did it happen? No one knows. How do I get out of it? No one can help him. So th that's the conflict. So the premise actually introduces the conflict, the, the, con the, you know, the, the, the catalyst. Um, and you usually want to create that conflict in the protagonist after you have successfully sketched out the normal world. Um, don't, don't start, you know, it's not an action film. Don't start, or you could, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no rule that can't be broken, but you know, don't start with something crazy happening before I know who this person is. What's their normal world? What's, what's, what's the deal with them? What's the deal with how they live? And then you can create something that, that threatens that normal world. Um, uh, again, in, in, in Big, uh, there's a whole scene of him, his relationship with his best friend, his wanting to be with the little girl, uh, and then the, you know, the conflict is, but now he's a 30-year-old man, what does he, want to, what does he do? Um, uh, in, uh, in Groundhog Day, it's, it's living the same day over and over again. In, in uh, Splash, it's you fall in love with a mermaid. But before that, you want to take the time to let me know, what would this guy be like? What would the world be like if that didn't happen? Take the, you know, and is that two pages, five pages, 10 pages? It's got to be what you need to create the foundation of a real world before the crazy world starts. Um, again, because the better your foundation, the better we're going to believe the incredibly crazy things that are happening in Act 3. Uh, in, in Groundhog Day, it's 25 minutes, practically 25 minutes be before the magic happens. 
And what are they, how do they spend that 25 minutes? There's a couple of minutes in the, in the network, in the stu network studio, where we see what a jerk he is. There's the, the ride up to Punxsutawney, where we see what a funny jerk he is. And then there's the whole day. And you need to create that whole day because what would be the point of going back and reliving it unless we knew what the day was? In fact, in Danny Rubin's first draft, he begins in day three. He begins in the third day in the middle of this incredible happening, happenstance. And at first, Harold Ramis uh, loved that. He loved, he said, that's so brave. You're just jumping right into it. You're beginning in the third day. And he, when he optioned, he said, we will never change that. Never change that. And then one of the people working with him in his office said to him, but how would you know what's being repeated if you don't know what the day is like? So they quickly rewrote it so that it's, you had that long first day so that you could always go back to it and see where you were, see what your progression was in terms of this, this, this magical happening. Uh, in Danny Rubin's mind, Danny Rubin thought it was 10,000 years because in Buddhist uh, philosophy, you have to live 10,000 lives to become enlightened. 10,000 years was a little long for Harold Ramis to wrap his head around. He figured 10 years, but still 10 years of living the same day over and over again. And in fact, in terms of structure, you asked me about structure. Uh, you should know what structures are, but, but there isn't just one structure. There isn't just one method. Uh, just like there's only one way to paint a picture. Uh, you know, there's cubist, there's, there's abstract, there's representational. There's more than one way to paint a picture. And the idea that you have to follow this structure, have to, is not necessarily true. I mean, knowing structure is pretty good. Um, uh, I, I like, in terms of structure, I like what Michael Haig has to say of it, Chris Vogler, The Hero's Journey, certainly Robert McKee, but none of those are sacrosanct. Uh, Michael Haig and I toured through Australia. Uh, we were doing this thing called the Art of Romantic Comedy and he would teach the first day and he would teach his structure and all the rules of romantic comedy and I would come in the second day and talk about what, well, what makes the comedy funny and, and puncture, puncturing as much as I can the rules he taught the first day. Um, and he would show scenes from Hitch which to him uh, follows that structure perfectly and I would talk about Groundhog Day. And I would say to him, why don't you ever talk about Groundhog Day? And he says, because it doesn't follow the structure. Because the Groundhog Day has seven acts. Because it consciously has this long first act of setup, the normal world. And then it follows the five stages of grief as, as written by Kubler-Ross. Um, denial, a very short amount of almost no anger, but then a lot of negotiation. That's where he figures out how to pick up girls by asking them leading questions and then coming back the next day where he remembers it, but they don't, and answer, you know, Mrs. Braun's class, 12th grade, and they go, oh yeah, I remember you. And then he's able to sleep with all the girls and then he, he makes himself have the perfect date with, uh, with uh, Andy McDowell, you know, because she'll say to him, uh, he said, what did you study in college? I studied 18th century French poetry. <laughs> what a waste of time that is. And of course, then she completely freezes up, but then, he comes back the next day and he says, so what did you study in college? 18th century French poetry. And then he, he reels off this long poem, poetic stanza in French. And she says, you speak French? And he says, oui. Um, because he's just, he's the clever, tricky servant. Um, 
that's, that's the archetype. Uh, and then after negotiation, there's depression where he tries to kill himself. And then there's a long period of acceptance. There's first the acceptance where he gets her to accept that it's really happening. But then the next day she forgets all about it. And then there's the old man sequence where the old man dies and he won't accept it. That the old man, he tries to get the old man to live. He takes him to the hospital. He, he takes him to a diner and, and gives him more food. But the old man keeps dying on him. And then he finally has to accept that he's not God. Uh, and finally, the last part of acceptance is he goes through the entire town helping people because he's figured out that if he, this is going to be his whole life, just this one day, that the only way to, to spend his life is to be of service to others. And so that's all he does every day. But, but what, what is so brilliant about what Harold Ramis and Danny Rubin and Bill Murray do is they keep him human. There's the, the first sequence in this, what, what Harold Ramis calls the Superman day, is there's this kid who's about to fall from a tree. And uh, Bill Murray's running late. So he has to run, run to catch the kid. And he finally catches the kid. And the kid just runs off and he says, you're going to thank me? You're gonna, you've never thanked me. You know, I'll see you again tomorrow, maybe. He's human enough to just want to be thanked, as opposed to just being a saint. He hasn't turned into a saint. He's still human. So finally, after all of that, after he's accepted the fact that he may love Andy McDowell, Rita, from afar and never really have her, and he's okay with that because just loving her is enough, just do, being a good person is enough then he's finally somehow released from the curse. So that's a, a, a very strange structure that they followed. There's nothing, you won't find it in Sid Fields or, or, or Michael Haig or Robert McKee, but if that's how you want to tell your story. That's how you have to tell your story. So don't be a, uh, uh, you know, a prisoner of structure. Structure is there to help you. Structure is there to think, well, what happens next? Well, if this was structured classically, this is, what happens. But as you're working on your screenplay, you might come up with a different structure. In fact, you might have no structure. There's no reason you can't write a brilliant comedy about a boy and a girl sitting on a park bench talking for two hours. It's just <laughs> really, really difficult. Um, so, but if you have this idea, go for it. And, and you know, then, then test it out. And, and how do you test out a screenplay? You test it out by getting people to sit around a table or at least half of them sitting around the table reading parts and the other half of them sitting around the table drinking wine, that's important, uh, eating, eating some cheese, and listen. And, and don't get actors together, don't rehearse them, that would be the death of it. What you want is you want a SIC experience. Sick is the Latin word for as is. You just want to hear the script as is without trying to make it better. Because if something works on the page, in the mouths of, you know, maybe just another writer, not a, not a trained actor, you know it's alive. And if something's flat, then you know something's wrong. And, and then the, 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 the hard task is to not, is to wake up from the coma that, that writers put themselves in when they hear their script being read out loud and try to, uh, try to do what you need to do in order to, um, in order to fix it. Can you talk about how to create real moments with a character, help the audience develop a connection with them, even if they're not a likable character? Well, uh, I, I, I take issue with the word likable, because likable is the, 
is the death knell of, of filmmaking because everybody writes characters and then the studio says, make them more likable. Um, but likable isn't really necessarily interesting. What you want is you want relatable. You want somebody to be relatable. You want to tell the truth about people. If you tell the truth about people, people will relate to them. They'll see themselves or their, their loved ones or their family in those characters and they will attach to those characters. But when characters are negative because some writer thinks it's, it's edgier to have somebody be negative, what they're really doing is they're playing negative actions. And a negative action um, is, is okay for, uh, for drama or, 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 or soap operas, but, but comedy requires positive actions. By negative action, I don't mean somewhere, some, something where people, somebody's being negative, but a negative action is doing something that doesn't help the character. Doing, taking an action that doesn't help the character, doesn't move the character closer to what they want, what wins for them. Uh, you mentioned, um, what about Bob? What about Bob is perfect because all Richard Dreyfus does in the first two thirds of the movie is complain. He never tries to solve the problem. Once Bob shows up, he doesn't try to do anything but complain about it. He doesn't try to outthink him. He doesn't try to, to you know, you know, fight fire with fire or or you win more uh, more things with honey than with vinegar. It's just always a complaint. And there's a big difference between complaint and comedy, even though they start with the first three, the same first three letters. In, in comedy, people blindly, blithely, um, haphazardly, unconsciously, unknowingly try to do what they think they need to do in order to make their lives work. But sometimes you'll have a character who does something that isn't making their lives work and they're being nasty just because somebody, a director or a writer or an actor thinks nasty is edgy. But, uh, there, but positive action is like Jack Nicholson in As Good As It Gets. Jack Nicholson is the most foul-mouthed or, or insulting person in the world, but you love him because he's not doing it to hurt other people. He's doing it to help himself. He, so so it, in positive means not everything with a smile. Positive means you're doing it to, to further your own ends. It, you can also think of it as selfish action. So when um, in his uh, editor's office, the receptionist goes, oh, oh, please stop. Could you tell me? You know, I, I just want to talk to you. And he says, why is that? Because you know what's, what, you know, how I feel like in here. And she touches her head and her heart. And he goes, oh my God. And she says, oh, no, 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 no. How do you write women so well? And he just turns with, with a great smile and says, I think of a man. And take away reason and accountability. Uh, and it's a big, everybody laughs. Women laugh, even though it's seen, you know, on the surface, it's a misogynistic thing to say. Because he's not doing it to be mean. His purpose isn't to be mean. His purpose is to help himself, to get himself out of what, he, what to him is an awkward social situation, which is why in the trip down uh, south, I guess, with, with Greg Kinnear and, and Helen Hunt, he is always insulting Greg Kinnear um, by you know, terms like fudge packer and all this, not because he's trying to hurt him. He's actually trying to figure out a way to have a nice trip with them. It's positive action. So 
you want the character to be relatable. You want them to be interesting. You want them to be recognizable. Recognizable as a human being that you recognize yourself in or you recognize people that you know in them as opposed to, you know, we know people who are negative. Um, but to think that somebody's just going to be negative all the time is a stereotype. It's, it's two-dimensional. Um, another way to make a character uh, likable uh, or relatable is uh, you give them an emotional moment that, that is something that is how you would approach that moment. Um, you know, so, you know, as Blake Snyder says, you know, save the cat. Uh, you don't have to, you have to save the cat. You could just have a, a, a human feeling. Just, just be somebody, stop trying to be funny for a second and be a human being with all its flaws and, and, and idiosyncrasies and idiocies. And if I see that on screen, I'll go, okay, okay. I, 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 I like that um, uh, in uh, The Way, Way Back. Okay, Sam Rockwell plays this clever, funny, uh, wonderful, uh, the guy you wish was the head counselor at your summer camp. Uh, and what makes, him, what makes him relatable is that he's also kind. That, he's, that he isn't just a jerk, he's kind. So he's cool and kind. Oh my God, I wish I had an older brother like that. So of course you start to root for him. But you also root for the kid in the way, way back because he's having a terrible summer with his you know, terrible mom's boyfriend. Uh, and, and you relate to that. I remember when I was a kid and I had a terrible summer. Didn't we all? So you just create, you tell the truth about human beings. If you tell the truth, Comedy will happen, relatability will happen, recognition will happen. Another mistake that, that writers make is they, they have a, uh, a, a single goal that they have ascribed to their protagonist, their main character. And because if the character just went on a straight line, they'd achieve the goal in 15, 20, 30 pages, they create obstacles to keep the character from the goal conflict. But uh, in a comedy, um, you often have your initial goal, which is based upon the wrong thinking of the character, and then you have the eventual true goal, which the character only discovers midway through the film. Um, I, I can think of dozens of films like that, where, where in, in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray just wants to be a newscaster, a weatherman at a bigger station. And then along the way, he realizes that he loves Rita and he wants to get Rita. Um, uh, in, uh, in, in Wedding Crashers, their goal is just to bang as many women as they want. But then he meets the girl and then it all becomes, how do I, how do I get with her if I've, if I've been a fraud my, my whole life? Uh, so more important than, than creating obstacles to impede your hero from attaining the goal, you want to create learning moments, aha moments, primal moments, moments of discovery, moments of revelation that teach your hero, give your hero something like 
you know, in, in Chris Vogler's The Hero's Journey, you're, you're actually giving him the magic implements that he'll be able to use later on to, you know, solve the problem to save the princess. Um, Shrek, talking about saving a princess, again, Shrek just starts off wanting people out of the swamp, get everybody out of my swamp. And then in order to do that, they give him another task. I have to go save the princess. But in order to do that, I have to, I have to beat the dragon. But in order, now that I've beaten the dragon, or actually the dragon's fallen in love with my donkey, uh, now I have to get the princess back just to get my swamp back to normal. But by then he's fallen in love with the princess and he wants the princess, so his goals change. Your initial goal is often not the goal your, your uh, protagonist ends up with or ends up trying to achieve. So it sounds like there's mini goals along the way. Mi well, well, things that come out of the first goal, but then there's, all, there's usually a revelation, a, a realization that the character has that, the, that they need, they want a, a different goal, they want something else. So Steve, in your book, The Hidden Tools of Comedy, I believe you have a chapter at the end on how do you actually land a job as a writer. Right. And there's something to the effect of be brilliant and let everybody know about it. How do you do that without becoming Bill Murray? <laughs> uh, well, okay. First <laughs> off, first off um, people ask, how, how do you sell a screenplay? And, and the first part of that is, um, is be brilliant. You know, write a brilliant screenplay. Get your craft to the point where it's so good, people can't um, can't deny it. Uh, there's there's a a small corollary to that, which is, in comedy, it's great to have a great comic premise, uh, the lie that tells the truth. Um, if you have a great premise, uh, something that's so delicious that makes other people want to see that movie, have the movie start to happen in their own imagination, that's a great selling tool. Um, that's that's basically the the story of. Groundhog Day, where the original script, not as funny as what you, what you end up with in the, in the final film, uh, the structure is all different, the character is very different. In the original draft, um, the character Phil is just a nice guy. He's got no lesson to learn. He's just kind of stuck for 70 pages in this terrible time warp, and then he gets out of it. And so there's no, you know, you don't feel the same cathartic sense of satisfaction as you do in the, you know, in, the, in the final revised draft. But the film had such a great premise, a premise that hadn't been overdeveloped, that it just made Harold Ramis want to buy it immediately. So if you have a great premise, uh, a premise that no one else has thought of, or basically a premise that you have lifted from an earlier, and by earlier I mean way earlier, 1920s, 1930s film that hasn't been explored in a long time that you can put your own, your own twist on, your own take on, that's a great selling tool. But then, having done that, you need to make it brilliant. How do you make it brilliant? You make it brilliant by exposing it first to other people. Like we talked about you know, at, at another point, um, you want to hear your stuff read out loud. You want other people to hear your stuff read out loud, and you want to be open to that experience. Um, by being open to the experience, what that means is don't have a Q&A afterwards. Um, give, your, give your friends wine and cheese um, and have them, all you want to know is what parts did you like, what parts, what parts were you not that interested in. That's all you want to know. Neil Gaiman once said that 95% of the comments you get 
on a work of art is accurate. 95% of the solutions you're given are inaccurate. So you don't want to hear what, you know, why don't you make them all, uh, you know, uh, uh, pygmies from Borneo? No, you don't want to hear that. What you do want to hear is, I love that part. Eh, this part, eh. You know, if, if, if that means that a human being went, eh, at a certain part, you got to take that into account. What, you know, is it true? Is it not true? Is, what, what is meh in that? Uh, can, is there a fix to it? So you want to get your script as good as you possibly can get it. Um, and there's no substitute for hearing it read out loud. Uh, before they made Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers didn't just go onto the set and be brilliantly funny. They toured those set pieces, like, uh, like the stateroom scene, up and down the West Coast in vaudeville all summer long. So they knew absolutely, based upon human beings' reactions, what was playing. And so when they shot it, when they went to shoot it, they knew exactly what was funny and what wasn't funny you know, shooting it without an audience. Um, once you've done that, you then want to let people know about it. And how do you let people know about it? One way is uh, to, you don't need to become Bill Murray, but you do need to lose all shame. And shame is, oh, you know, I used to go to high school with that person, but I haven't talked to them in 20 years. Oh, I can't just call them up and why not? Why not just call them up? Because there's an important thing. Uh, this isn't as true in New York, but in Los Angeles, Los Angeles is high school with money. What does that mean? That means that if you're a great, a great transfer student, but no one knows you, you're not getting invited to the party. No matter how wonderful you are, no one knows you. So in Los Angeles, face-to-face -face is, so is so much more valuable than some abstract, brilliant script. First, you need to let people know about it. Just a case in point, uh, I, I, was, uh, I was doing a project for, uh, for HBO several years ago. And these uh, comics from Montreal had written a script. I thought, they gave it to me, I thought it was very funny. Um, a Disco Inferno, uh, about, uh, you know, kind of a spoof of all disaster films. And uh, it was centered around a disco that somebody had you know, had inadvertently placed or, or evilly placed because the evil developer placed in, a, in what they thought was a dormant volcano. So Disco Inferno. Um, and, uh, I, you know, they said, could you help us? So I said, well, I know some people. So I sent it around to some people. Didn't get much of a, much of a, a response. Then I met a guy at a party, a dinner party. I sat next to him for about two hours. We talked made him laugh, he made me laugh. I sent him the script. He was working as 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 a, as a executive uh, at some company. The script got optioned by these people. What's the difference? The only difference was he knew me. He met me. I was a nice guy. I was an okay guy. So he read the script knowing that as opposed to just reading the script on its own merits, whether you thought it was funny or not funny. So that, that taught me the power of face-to-face relationship. Now, how can you create face-to-face -face relationship? One way is to not be shy or, 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 or shamed. Make a list of everybody who you've ever met or might have met or, 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 or possibly met or stood behind in Starbucks waiting for a coffee. Everybody and studiously, methodically get in touch with all of them. What do you have to lose? Because here's the thought.
If somebody came to you and said, I need your help, what would you do? You would say, okay, if I can help you, sure. Why are those people different? They're human beings too. People want to help other people. Now, there will be people who are assholes. Well, they're not going to help you because they're assholes. I once asked somebody, when I first came to Los Angeles, I was looking to get settled somewhere. I asked somebody, uh, could we get together? I'd love to pick your brain. And there was this long pause on the phone. And she said, I don't like my brain being picked. And then there was about a minute of awkward conversation and I hung up and it was like, well, fuck you, you know? Okay, I mean, uh, so she wasn't gonna give me any help. But the other part of the story was, it turned out that a guy who I went to college with was a top executive of H at HBO. And so I emailed him. Was it, I think this is actually before emails. I, I called him, left a message, waited three days, called again, without saying, I've already called once, just called again. Because busy guy, one of the top executives at HBO, called again. I must have called 13 times just to sit down with the guy. And, I, and, and, and by the 13th time, his secretary said, you know, he really wants to talk to you. Okay. Well, I mean, one of the things that that taught me was, uh, you know, in New York, if you call somebody and they don't return the phone call, that says something. But here in Los Angeles, if you call somebody and they don't return it, it's because they have 75 other phone calls that, that they haven't gotten to. There, there are 200 emails, you know, and, and there's only so much time and you're not on the top of their list. But rather than saying, oh, God damn them, I just called again and called again. I didn't call every day. I didn't call five times a day. I had a calendar and I said, enough time is gone. I just left a message. I wasn't asking for a loan. I was just leaving a message. Finally, we set up a meeting and I go in there and I say, uh, Chris, do you remember me? We went to college together. And he said, you forgot. We went to high school too. It turned out I had gone to Stuyvesant High School with him and I had completely forgotten that. Uh, and because he knew me and we had, I had, he had borrowed, you know, uh, French fries from my plate, you know, in the cafeteria at Hofstra University. And this is my good friend. This is my good friend, Panther. Um, uh, he said, well, what do you got for me? And I told him one of my ideas. He said, why don't you get together with this guy, Dave, down the hall? And that started, my, uh, that started me in Los Angeles. And none of that would have happened if I had simply given up on the first try or second try. So what are writers shameful about? Everybody's shameful. Shameful that you're going to be rejected. Shameful that nobody's returned your phone call. Shame, shamed that, that you might call somebody and they don't remember you. Um, but my feeling is, is that if you called me and said, Steve, can you help me out? Why wouldn't I say yes? I like being a good person. I like helping people out. Most people are like me. So how do writers get out of that self-effacing, introverted mindset? Seems like a lot of them have, or maybe that's just a myth. No, no, uh, it's, it's hard. Um, there's, you get, you know, in the entertainment field, you, there's a lot of rejection. And, and the only way out of it is to take a deep breath and realize that the person you're talking to is just another human being. And if they don't respond to you, I mean, I'm not talking about buy your project. I'm talking about just agree to meet. If they don't agree, you know, if they don't want to meet with you, well, that says something more about them than it does about you. But 
you've more people have gotten deals or, or made sales based upon knowing somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody. And if you don't get it out there and say, could you show or, or do you, or could you help me? Well, no one's a mind reader. No one's going to say, I can feel that Karen wants help. I'm, you know, <laughs> you know we're, we're not the X-Men. All you can do is ask. Sometimes, you know, the answer is no, but, but all you can do is ask. And, uh, and then there are places that are actively looking. Um, uh, Nickelodeon, uh, Writers on the Verge, uh, the, big, the Big Break contest. I mean, there's all these places where if your stuff is brilliant. Now, if your stuff isn't brilliant, it's not gonna, you know, you can't pretend to yourself it's brilliant and blame other people for not buying it. But if your stuff is brilliant, um, then there's then there's avenues that you can explore to get it out there, or do it yourself. The important point is that if if no one can help you, you can still help yourself. Make the you know now with digital cameras, make the movie yourself. Other people have done it. I mean, it's sometimes dispiriting to see Zach Braff go on you know. Uh, Kickstarter, and, and is that the is that um, and and say please help me I'm only a rich TV star uh, you know that's a little annoying. Uh, on the other hand, I, I did I did send some money to get the Veronica Mars movie made because I loved that series and I wanted to see it. But you have you have the power in your own hand. Make the movie. Do it as a one-person show. Um, I remember when I was working, doing this project at HBO called the HBO Workspace, which, by the way, no longer exists, so don't email me asking to see how you could get there because I don't run it anymore. But at the HBO Workspace, uh, we would put up uh, actors and writers and comics to showcase for HBO if they were interested in coming down that night or the industry. And uh, and we we put up this one, this one actress had this, one person show, very talented. She had done uh, the touring company of Second City, but she was a little old and a little not gorgeous. Um, and so she was having a hard time finding a place in Los Angeles. So she thought, well, let me do my own thing. So she did this show and she, we did it at the HBO workspace and it was very good. It was very funny. People loved it. HBO didn't do anything with it. So rather than saying, okay, I guess I did it. No one wants me. She decided, well, I, I think it's good. So I'm going to rent a theater company. I think it was The Matrix. And I'm going to perform it every Tuesday night. And so she did. Every Tuesday night. And people were loving it, but, in, you know, but still no one was hiring her. No one was optioning it. Until Rita Wilson showed up one day because it had a great title. My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And Rita Wilson, uh, despite her last name, is Greek. And so Rita Wilson saw it and loved it and brought her husband, Tom Hanks, to see it. And he loved it. And they made it into a movie. And it was the highest grossing independent comedy ever made. Um, didn't, wasn't a very good, uh, successful television show, but it still, it started her, started her career. Because she didn't take no for an answer and she didn't wait for somebody to do it for her. Uh, the guy who did the tweet Shit my dad says. He was a failed TV writer. Went back to, you know, went broke, went back to San Diego, lived with his dad. Who knows what his dad said? Who knows, 
if he just made all that stuff up. But people loved it so much, he got a deal. It wasn't a great series as it turned out, but he did get a deal. Um, I, there's a, a guy I know in, in Australia. He wrote a wonderful comedy, rom-com about a guy, with, about a scientist with Asperger's. This is, this is, he wrote this before The Big Bang Theory. Very funny. Nobody would read it. Nobody wanted it. Uh, the uh, industry in Australia doesn't really make that many rom-coms. Um, he was an unknown writer from Australia. Hollywood wasn't knocking down his door. So he said, I'll turn it into a novel. It gets picked up by a major publishing company. It was optioned because somebody was able to see the worth of it in a different, uh, in a different format. So don't think that you have to market your script as though it's the only thing you have. Do it as a blog, write a novel, um, do it as a one person show, figure out another way to let people know about it without, without taking no as an answer or without being an obnoxious uh, uh, drone. How is, how is, I'm curious, what, what is an obnoxious drone? That's interesting, how does that? Somebody who, who takes, don't take no for an answer as though that means to talk to the same person who said no to you over and over again, as though today will be yes. Don't call people 15 times. Don't leave them 45 million tweets. Don't get angry. You know, I've called you three, 13 times already. Don't get angry uh, and move on. What if they're the type that loves a challenge? They love to always be closing. That's their salesman mentality and they, they, they thrive on Well, that. you're always closing, but you don't need to be closing with the same client. You can always be closing, but you know, if somebody doesn't buy that car, somebody else will walk into that lot who wants that car. Uh, you know, you, you, you try to improve your craft and, and get to know more people. How do you get to know more people? Join a writer's group, join, join, uh, you know, script writers network, jo be with people who are in the, who are in the business, who can be both support and, and uh, some, something to bounce things off of and possibly some, a conduit to, to meet somebody else. I mean, that's the whole idea behind LinkedIn. I'm not sure how useful LinkedIn is for the entertainment industry, but the whole idea is still the same. The more people you know, the more it's gonna help. How much networking is too much networking? Networking in which it's all about selling something and not about meeting people. People don't want to be sold, and desperate people don't sell anything. I mean, think, of, think about a desperate guy at a bar. Are you going to go home with him? No. Even if he's good looking, if he's desperate, he's all of a sudden less good looking. Um, so don't be desperate and don't be a user. People are interesting. If you're not that interested in people, don't be a screenwriter, you know, because you're writing about people. Um, you know, you know write, write a novel, write, do something where you can be all by yourself. But people are interesting and the more people you meet, uh, the better it is for your craft.